Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast. If you would like more information about First Baptist Church of Silva, please visit firstbaptistsilva.com. Let's not waste any time. Let's get right down to the heart of it. Judging. Definition. Condemning someone for being wrong. Judging, definition, to hold in contempt, or, according to Paul, to justify why you despise someone. Judging others, sadly, is the church's favorite pastime. We condemn people for any number of reasons. We judge others based on how they fold napkins at a reception or which flowers to plant in a flower bed or how to best arrange the flowers in a flower vase. We condemn one another for how people parent their children and for how somebody may have voted at a church conference. We despise one another for things that people have said to us in a parking lot years ago and for the things that that people believe, for the way that people vote, and pretty much anything that rubs us wrong. I mean, y'all, isn't judging others the reason why we have social media? In his book, Seculosity, David Zoll, the author, states that our motivation to feel good about ourselves leads us to cling to our own righteousness. That is the fact that we want to feel good about ourselves. Here at church, in your homes, at work, or in school, means that we feel obligated to prove how good we are, how right we are, how enough we are. When we don't feel worthy, when we don't feel enough, we jump at the chance to prove to ourselves and to others that we are righteous, literally that we are right, that we are okay. So we make ourselves feel better by showing how right or superior we are to others. The Pharisees in Scripture exhibit some of these tendencies and led Jesus to make a point of saying that the need to prove your righteousness is a cancer in our souls. Speaking of Jesus, Paul has chosen this moment in his letter to have a kind of come-to-Jesus talk about judging and despising others. He's talking about the life of the church, about how we are in community, especially when it seems that we have been wired to critique, to judge, and to put others down or to demonstrate how inferior they are. Paul's telling the church, 
literally, to not despise others over the differences that they have. It's a strong word, but I think you and I both know exactly what Paul's talking about here. That when we don't pay attention, the seeds of judging one another are right there to grow into any kind of thorny bush. The term despising others is what happens when we see ourselves as superior or right or correct. It is void of all kind of humility. In Paul's letter, he identifies some differences that the people are clearly exhibiting. And in their differences, he's learned that people are pointing and wagging their finger at one another. The differences that Paul's referencing here are issues related to what some people might describe as as personal preference. In fact, some will talk about these differences as non-essential. That is, non-critical. Specifically, he's talking about everyday things, eating and drinking. And also, the speciality of the different kinds of days of the week, whether they are feast days, depending on the pagan realities of the Roman Empire at this day, or whether food was the kind of food that certain groups should or shouldn't eat. These are no small things. They may, in fact, feel silly or strange to us, but for the people there, it was ground zero to the differences and the tension and the friction that existed with and among them. Now, before we conclude that Paul is telling the church to not get bogged down on what some might have called non-essential, keep in mind that the dietary restrictions inherent in practicing the Jewish faith were absolutely critical For we know that God's people, the Jewish people, had things that they could and couldn't eat. So for Paul, the once great leader and teacher of the Jewish faith, for him to be able to say, y'all don't let that become a reason for you to treat each other poorly, you know that this is a significant place and moment. But let's come clean. When it comes to our own opinions and beliefs, what we believe is absolutely critical and essential. Right from the beginning of this passage, Paul wants us to know that the Holy Spirit didn't form the church to fight over differing opinions or to persuade people that our opinions are right. That's not who we're called to be. That's not what the church is supposed to be. The church does not exist to be crusaders for right opinions. Contrary to what you might have experienced in the church of your youth or your young adulthood or the church that existed and flourished in the 20th century, we have not been created to be right and to prove to others that we are right and they are wrong. It is far more important to love than it is to be right, Paul tells us. Now, 
in his article in the journal The Atlantic titled, What Really Happens When Americans Stop Going to Church? Daniel Williams points out that people become even more entrenched in their opinions and political views when they stop attending services. Contrary to popular belief, churches at their best actually function to be depolarizing institutions. Some of us might find that hard to believe. They may think that churches have actually become a place of extreme beliefs one way or the other. But what these studies have found is that actually churches at our best work to make space where a multiplicity of different ideas and beliefs and ways of thinking can coexist as the author of this article says, being part of a religious community often forces people to get along with others, including others with different political views, and it may actually channel people's efforts into charitable work or form community outreach that have little to do with politics. Leaving the church community removes those moderating forces opening the door to extremism. Think about it. Years ago when I would show up at the farm for my father's great big family reunion, there were any number of different ways of living, ways of thinking, and ways of believing. But in the Mathis reunion space, there was always a great deep sense of love for one another. Until, of course, some men would go to the barn to talk for a few minutes. Because when these like-minded people got off to themselves, they said all sorts of things that they thought they all were in agreement on. This is human nature. We find and seek out those who we think believe like we do, vote like we do, live like we do. We find our own sense of identity and maybe even our own sense of righteousness in that reality. But y'all, what we found is what we've known to be true for centuries. And that when the church, the body of Christ, allows for any and all to be present, it demands that we treat one another with respect and kindness and care, regardless of how you voted or what you think or what you said. Being church at its best demands that we're on our best behavior because we automatically acknowledge that not everybody on your pew or in the choir loft or in your Sunday school room believes just like you do. And that reality changes how we are together. It makes it feel differently. Heaven help us. 
When we get together in a space where there is a sense of safety that we're all on the same page. Because we will say things that we know shouldn't be said in a larger group. And it's precisely for that reason why it's so important for us to practice being church as Paul describes right here. The study that that brings about this article and results in this article identifies that when people leave their congregations, they found that they continue to call themselves Christians, but their political ideas become their new church. And yes, brothers and sisters, this happens on both the left and the right. When people leave the moderating forces of church where you have to share space together, it's their political ideas that become their new places of worship. As Daniel Williams points out, the decline of church going in America, it seems, has not eviscerated Christianity. It simply distorted it. In this passage, Paul tells his listeners not to judge one another in at least three distinct places, three times. But it's this statement in verse 10 that makes my mouth gape open. Why do you pass judgment on your brothers or sister? Or you, or you, or you, why do you despise your brother or sister? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. I can't believe that I have to be explicit here, but that's where we are. Despising your brother or sister is not an act of love. Years ago, I used to ride around with my father in his Datsun 210 1980 white two-door car. He used to park it up the road when he would carpool into Atlanta from the suburbs. This poor car. I remember once my mom had come home from teaching and she had gotten groceries, but she had failed to alert us that there were some things that were in the trunk the next day when there was a terrible foul smell that was emanating from the car, we opened up the trunk to find out that there was not one, but two gallons of milk left in the back. And they had exploded. So the car, for months, if not years afterwards, just smelled of sour milk. It was, it was in this car that I remember my dad and I driving to church on Wednesday nights. We'd roll down the windows because it smelled so bad. But my dad always liked to fiddle with the very modest radio there in the console. It was his favorite radio program. It was Paul Harvey. And every time Paul Harvey's radio moment came on, my dad began to fiddle 
He'd make me roll up the windows, which of course made it stink that much more. And I was uncomfortable and hot. But he wanted to make certain that I didn't miss a single word of Paul Harvey's story. Now, some of you all know that Paul Harvey was an icon of the 20th century. His radio programs would highlight stories, individual people and circumstances that we might have overlooked or may not recall or even know the totality of what was going on there. And so dad would fiddle with the the sound of the bass and the treble so that Paul Harvey's lilt and trademark voice would come through. And y'all remember that moment in the radio program, the one that included his catchphrase where he'd say, and now you know the rest of the story. We've come to that moment in the scripture because... It's unnatural to break up any kind of correspondence and only zero in on one paragraph or, or one page. It doesn't make any sense, does it? And yet that's what we've done today. In the lectionary, there's only one set of verses that we are to give our attention to, verses 1 through 12. Brothers and sisters, I have news for you. That's not the rest of the story. Paul gets down to pay dirt right here. And it's worth lifting up. Let us therefore no longer pass judgment on one another, but resolve instead never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of another. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. If your brother or sister is being injured by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. Do not let what you eat cause the ruin of one for whom Christ died. So do not let your good be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not food and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The one who thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and has human approval Let us then pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Let us then pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. In this passage here, Paul is making it clear that the love that Christ has called us to is one that puts others forward in all things. And it puts the onus of responsibility on ourselves to be mindful of that which could hurt or harm others. So in all things, we've got to be aware. How is what I am saying or doing, eating, drinking, sleeping, whatever it is in terms of our behavior or our lifestyle, what is it that I might be doing that might hurt or harm others? Y'all, it's a complete 180 from our expectations in this world where it's all about what is best for me, myself, and I. Not in Christ Jesus. The church of Jesus Christ is one that is always mindful of how we are impacting the whole and not trying to claim some sense of superiority just because we can. This is the work of the church, people. To 
pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Paul concludes it this way. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. I'll take it another step forward. Do not, for the sake of being right, destroy the work of God. Do not, for the sake of getting the last word in an argument, destroy the work of God. Do not, for the sake of posting that inflammatory article or comment on social media, destroy the work of God. Do not, for the sake of claiming your right to do something, destroy the work of God. Do not, for the sake of your political beliefs, destroy the work of God. David Dickerson was a young man who had not been home in over 10 years. The reason? He couldn't stand his father's fervently held religious beliefs. He called his father's faith repressive and stifling and terrible. And unbeknownst to his his own father, He would not go home. He would not go and be in relationship with someone who he had come to believe had a monstrous set of ideas and beliefs. But after a decade, David decided to go home and to settle this once and for all. He decided, according to him, to go to war with his father and, frankly, all Christians for that matter. So during the visit when his father innocently mentioned some mission work he'd been praying about, his son David unleashed his fury. And this is what he said. He said, I just rambled on and on. And I knew essentially while I was doing this, I was assaulting my father's dream. You know, saying everything he was excited about that he was sharing with me was misbegotten. was a bad idea. was morally corrupt. And my father just kind of let me quietly attack him and go on and on. David's father let him expend every round of ammunition without arguing or retreating or getting defensive. He would just simply look at his son and say, David, I'm really proud of everything that you've done. In response, David would reflect. I remember looking at my dad in that moment and I thought, I had expected him to argue back. You know, maybe not to win, but to, to come to at least some kind of armistice. You know, some, some kind of truce. I hadn't expected to lose completely because you can't argue with decency. You can't argue with goodness. I'll take it one more step further. You can't argue with love. Because you can't.
Let us pray. God, remind us what your church should look like. And that is being a place where any and all are welcome. We are mindful of what we say and how we say it. What we do and how we do it. We recognize that in all things we should put others first. That the best expression of your love is revealed to us in a Jesus who when he could have done anything else, he washed feet. Even the feet of those who would leave and abandon him when it counted the most. Help us to have that kind of transformative love, God, so that when we see one another, we certainly don't despise them. We certainly don't see the differences that exist between us, but instead, that when we see our brothers and sisters in Christ, we see you and we treat one another accordingly. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen.